Welcome, my friends, to this edition of the History of Christianity. We're on part 35 today. We'll be looking at the second part of our discussion on the topic of the golden age of medieval Christianity. And we begin that discussion by looking at the topic of scholasticism. The 13th century marked the high point of medieval scholasticism. This is the name given to the theology that developed in the schools at this time. It began in monasteries, moved to cathedral schools, and settled in universities. Anselm of Canterbury was the most important forerunner of scholasticism. He was named Archbishop of Canterbury in AD 1093. Anselm soon clashed with the king over the question of the relative authority of church and state. So the same question that just seems to be coming up over and over again, what authority should the state have? What authority should the church have? It's an ongoing clash, and Anselm fell into the same thing. As a result of that, Anselm spent most of his career exiled from Canterbury, so he was kicked out a lot. He couldn't get along with the king, and the king didn't like what he thought about the authority that the church should have versus the authority that the state should have. But the good thing about it was, during those periods of exile, he meditated and wrote on theological issues. And he had a lot to say, and it was some important stuff. Anselm's significance lies in his desire to apply reason to questions of faith. Anselm believed in the existence of God, but he wanted to understand what that existence meant. In his Proslogion, Anselm developed what has come to be called the ontological argument for the existence of God. The argument states that when one thinks of God, one is thinking of that than which no greater can be thought. Is it possible to think of such a being not existing? No, because that would mean an existing being would be greater than it. Therefore, by definition, the idea of that than which no greater can be thought includes its existence. So this is a philosophical argument, an argument from what Anselm would call reason. It's kind of one of those circular arguments that's one of those things you either go with it or you don't. And at the time, it was definitely a new way of thinking. And Anselm began to kind of introduce that thinking and introduce those questions. And you're going to see more and more of that throughout this time of scholasticism that's to come. While this argument has been discussed and debated through the ages, what is important to note is the method of Anselm's theology which applies reason to a truth known by faith in order to stand, understand it better. So the thing to remember about Anselm and, and these thinkers at the time, these theologians, they took it for granted that these things revealed by God were true. So they weren't questioning the existence of God. They weren't trying to come up with a reason to believe in it. They already believed in it. Uh, the church said it was true, so it had to be true. God had revealed it to be true. But they wanted to then take what they already knew and apply reason to that belief. So they're already coming into it with the belief in hand, but then the the argument or the way of looking at it would kind of spring out from what was already established in their minds of being fact. So it wasn't just a pursuit of the question of the existence of God. It was more to apply reason to something that they already were sh sure was true. And Anselm was one of the first forerunners of this way of thinking. Anselm wrote a treatise called Why God Human? And in it, he explores the question of the reason for the incarnation. So he 
wanted to look at why would Jesus need to come in the flesh? Why would God need to come in the flesh? Again, already accepting the fact that he believes that that happened, not questioning that, but why did it need to happen? And his answer would eventually become standard in Western theology. And here's the answer. The importance of a crime is measured in terms of the one against whom it is committed. Therefore, a crime against God, which we would call sin, is infinite in its import. But on the other hand, only a human being can offer satisfaction for human sin. This is obviously impossible for human beings are finite and cannot offer the infinite satisfaction required by the majesty of God. For this reason, there is need for a divine human, God incarnate, who through his suffering and death offers satisfaction for the sins of all humankind. And anyone who is familiar with Christian thinking and Christian theological thinking would be very familiar with this particular argument. It did gain a lot of traction, and in fact, the, this view on the work of Christ soon gained such credence that most Western Christians came to accept it as the only biblical one. There's just one problem with that. His reasoning is clearly shaped by feudal views on crime and its penalties. So the way of looking at this that Anselm introduces is not in any way contrary to the biblical record or the teachings of Scripture. But the way that he reasons it is definitely very much of the time in which he lived. So nothing wrong with that. To understand things in the way that you know things to be is not wrong. You read in the Gospels, Jesus often used everyday examples to explain to people the spiritual lessons he wanted to teach them. But the problem comes in when you assume this is the only biblical one because it is an argument that is very much from the time in which Anselm lived. And so while it's useful and while it's a very good way of explaining it, it's not the only biblical one. But for Western Christians, in a lot of ways, that thinking is very much cemented since Anselm brought it about. Let's move now to another guy. Peter Abelord was another important forerunner of scholasticism. He was born in 1079. Abelord's life was a series of calamities, many self-inflicted. As a youth, Abelord studied under the famous scholars of his time, and he found them wanting and let them know it. And that created many enemies. It's really not a good idea if you're a young man to go to all your teachers and basically tell them, I don't really find what you're saying to be very convincing, and I don't like your way of thinking, and I think that I can do it better. Well, you can do that if you'd like, but you're probably not going to be making friends, and he did. And in this next instance, he went even beyond that. He then went to Paris to tutor the canon of cathedral's niece, Heloise. The teacher and student became lovers and had a child. So Peter and Heloise, in their relationship as teacher and student, they had a romantic relationship and it produced a child. Well, Heloise's uncle was not real crazy about this. In fact, he was so outraged that he had a gang of ruffians emasculate Abelard. And as a result, Abelard went into a life of monastic retreat. Well, I guess so. After that happens to you, you have a, a few ways you can go in life. And one of those would be to go to monastic retreat. And that's what he did. But even there, things didn't go great for him. He was labeled a heretic for his bold use of reason. Bernard of Clairvaux had him condemned as a heretic in 1141. So things have not gone great for Peter in his life. He has had a lot of hard times. Did he deserve to have them? Well, they were certainly some of this self-inflicted 
criticizing his teachers, having a romantic relationship with a student, not great things to do. So his life has probably not gone as planned, but there is a little bit of good news at the end of his life. He died in 1142, but before that, he was reconciled to the church and to Heloise prior to his death. So he did kind of leave in the good graces of the church and his former lover there. But again, probably if he had to do it over again, he probably would have made some different decisions. Abelard's main contribution was the book Yes and No, in which he took up a series of 158 theological questions and then showed that various authorities, including the Bible and the ancient Christian writers, did not agree on their answers. Abelard's purpose was to show that theology must not be content with citing authorities. It was necessary to find ways to reconcile such apparently contradictory authorities. So he's just basically pointing out that respected people, respected writings, respected ancient literature, when it's talking about certain topics in Christianity, certain theological questions, they don't all agree. And he's showing how they don't all agree. That becomes important because scholasticism would use this method. A typical scholastic would pose a question and then quote authorities who seem to support one answer and or other authorities who seem to support another. While Peter would have basically left it at that, these scholastics would then go and try to find a way to make it appear as if all sides were correct in their thinking. They all agreed, even though it didn't look like they agreed. So they went beyond this, and it's a big part of that type of learning and that type of the, theological study that was going on at the time in scholasticism. And it, it really kind of grew out of this way of doing things that Peter Abelard established. Turn now to a third guy that was very influential forerunner of scholasticism, and that's Peter Lombard. He wrote four books of sentences. These were a systematic treatment of theology dealing with an orderly fashion with the main themes of Christian theology from the doctrines of God to the last things. It eventually became the basic textbook for the teaching of theology in the universities. So during this time of scholasticism, during this time of learning theology in this way in these universities, this book, this series of books that he wrote were the basic textbook that they used. So he was very influential in the way that studies were done at this time. Two other developments were significant for the early history of scholasticism. One was the growth of universities and then the reintroduction of the teaching of Aristotle into Western Europe. We don't have a lot of time to talk about this. We could actually really look at the development of universities at this time. It has a lot of important things to say about the history of Western Europe and really the world for that matter. But in order to save time, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. We will get back to this looking at how the reintroduction of Aristotle's philosophical thinking in Western Europe really had a big effect later on. Let's look at a couple of the really main teachers of the scholastic time. Albert the Great is the first of these. He was one of the great teachers of scholasticism, and he was of the Dominican order. Albert made a clear distinction between philosophy and theology. Philosophy operates on the basis of autonomous principles, which can be known apart from revelation. It seeks to discover truth by a strictly rational method. So a big part of the scholastic era, the era of scholasticism, was looking at what 
was in the realm of reason and philosophy and what was in the realm of theology and how those interact. People looked at it in different ways. Albert had a very clear distinction. He, he saw a purpose and a place for philosophy, but he definitely put theology on a higher plane. So that has a lot of influence on the great student that he had. We'll look at it in a moment. But just know that he's one of the guys that really shaped this period of time by looking at the distinction between philosophy and theology in this way. Theology sets out from revealed truths, which cannot be known by reason alone. Revealed truths are always more certain than those of reason, which may err. So right off the bat, Albert puts theology ahead of philosophical thinking or, or reason for a couple of reasons. One is that you can't get to everything that's true through reason. There are things of God that the rational mind cannot understand or cannot get to. It's an intuitive leap that the mind can't make, that reason can't make by itself. It has to be revealed. And so the way you get to that revealed truth is through theology. And then the other reason is because human beings come up with philosophical thinking or reason the human mind is going to err. Theology won't be an won't be an error because it comes from God. It comes from a perfect source, even though human beings put it together. But philosophy is not. Reason is not. There's going to be mistakes. So he put he definitely put theology above philosophy, but he didn't discount either one. He thought that they both had a purpose. Philosophers, as long as they remain within the scope of what reason can attain, should be free to pursue their inquiry without having to turn to the guiding hand of theology. So he said to the philosophers, you should do your work. There's nothing wrong with having philosophical thinking, and you don't have to be under theology in order to do that. You just have to stay in your lane. You have to stay in the scope of what you can attain. There are going to be some questions that philosophers can't answer. There are going to be some things that reason just can't get you to alone. As long as you understand that, stay within the context of the things that philosophy can do, then you're fine. And you don't have to be under theology, but you have to be able to at least say, you know, there's some territory we can't get to on our own. An example of this would be on the question of the eternity of the world. Albert confesses that as a philosopher, he cannot prove creation out of nothing. But as a theologian, he knows that the world was made out of nothing and is not eternal. So he's saying that there's no reasonable explanation for the creation of the world you can't understand how it was created. Now, understanding in, he's taking it for granted that revealed truth is correct. What the scriptures has to say about the creation of the world is right. And if that is correct, then he knows the only way people would have ever known that is because it was revealed to them, because the scripture said it, because God let that knowledge be known. A person in and of themselves without that knowledge could never reason their way to understanding it and to know that the world was created out of nothing and is not therefore eternal. So in this case, reason cannot attain truth because the object of inquiry is beyond the scope of human reason. So that was the thinking that Albert the Great introduced, and it was very, very influential. And that brings us to his great student, which is actually the greatest and most influential theologian for this time, and one of the most influential theologians in all of Western history, and that is Thomas Aquinas. Albert's most famous disciple was Thomas Aquinas. He was born about 1224 near Naples. He grew up in an aristocratic family. In 1244, Thomas decided to become a Dominican, which did not meet with the approval of his family. 
for his family, the Dominican order was, they weren't quite up to snuff. They weren't on the level that somebody from a aristocratic family would have joined. Now his family did want him to be in the church and he wanted, they wanted him to be in the clergy. So that wasn't the problem. It was this, not a Dominican. So it didn't matter to Thomas. He still wanted to become one. Well, his family's really didn't like it to the point that his mother and brother locked him up in the family castle for more than a year attempting to dissuade him. So they basically kidnapped Thomas, locked him up for a year in order for him to think about just how bad a decision it was to become a Dominican. Well, Thomas did escape and he completed his novitiate among the Dominicans and went to study at Cologne under Albert. So he got away, he went and finished his time with the Dominicans, and then he went on to start his career by studying at Cologne under Albert the Great. His intellectual gifts eventually shone through, and Thomas spent most of his life in academic circles, particularly in Paris, where he became a famous professor. Thomas produced an enormous volume of literary works. He died in 1274 at only 50 years of age, so he died relatively young, but he did produce an extreme amount of literary works. His teacher, Albert, outlived him and became one of the staunchest defenders of his views. So his great teacher actually outlived him, but Albert realized his genius and he became a big defender of Thomas and his views. Thomism, the name given to his system, had at its heart the relationship between faith and reason, just like Albert did. That same idea of theology versus reason. How do you put those two together? Well, Thomism definitely has a lot to say about that. On the relationship between faith and reason, Thomas believed that some truths are within the reach of reason and others are beyond it. So he's going right along with what Albert believed. Philosophy deals with the first, those things that are truths within the reach of reason. There are some of those. But theology is not limited to the latter. What does that mean? The reason for this is that there are some truths that reason can prove, but which are necessary for salvation. So there are some things that are revealed truth, but also you can get to through reason if you have the intellect to do that. But since God does not limit salvation to those who are intellectually gifted, all truth necessary for salvation has been revealed. So Thomas is saying, even though you can get to some of these truths without it being revealed to you, God still revealed them anyway, because not everybody is going to have the intellectual capacity to, through reason, get to what you have to know in order to be saved. And God is not unfair. He's not only going to allow those who are intellectually gifted to make it to salvation. So he's revealed them, and they are theologically theological truths that are revealed by God, but you could also get to the same truths by reason. Thus, such truths are a proper field of inquiry for both philosophy and theology. You can study them in both directions. And let's give an example of this, Thomism on the existence of God. Since it is impossible to be saved without believing God exists, the existence of God must be a revealed truth. So Thomas first starts with this is in the realm of theology, it's in the realm of faith. It's something that God has revealed that he exists. No one can plead lack of intelligence because the existence of God is an article of faith. So nobody can say, you know what? Yes, reason can bring you to an understanding that God exists, but my mind, I didn't have the capacity to reason that out. And so it's not fair that I be condemned for that. 
And Thomas is saying that's not true because God revealed it anyway. He didn't tell people they had to reason it out. He went ahead and revealed it. But the existence of God is also a truth that can be verified by reason. In this case, reason can prove what faith accepts. So remember, again, these guys are coming at this by taking for granted that these articles of faith, that these things revealed in Scripture are true. It, philosophers through the ages that have talked about this certainly did not all accept that premise. So they would very much disagree with Thomas that the existence of God is a truth that can be verified by reason, that reason can prove that God exists. A lot of people would say, well, that's not true. But in Thomas's mind, it was. Therefore, the existence of God is a proper subject for both philosophy and theology. For Thomas, who was influenced by Aristotle, the argument for the existence of God started with data known through the senses and from them move on to the existence of God. So this is when we get into this idea of the philosophy of Aristotle being being brought into the Western world. We're going to look at this in a moment, but this very much differentiates between what has been kind of the the big classical philosopher that influenced Christians for years, and that was Plato. Aristotle had a very different way of looking at things, and so Thomas, who was influenced by Aristotle, therefore himself looked at things very differently. And we'll see what that means here in just a moment. Anselm, who was influenced by Plato, distrusted the senses. His arguments for the existence of God began not by looking at the world, but by examining the idea itself of God. So this is the big difference. Thomas, influenced by Aristotle, is looking at the world by starting with the senses and moving on to reason. Anselm, influenced by Plato, distrusts the material world and the senses, and so he's going to start with reason and then move on to, you know, to, to the material world, the ramifications of that. So very different ways of looking at things, but both can be very helpful and both have their own problems. While for Anselm, true knowledge is to be found in the realm of pure ideas, Thomas held that sense perception is the beginning of knowledge. So what does this all ultimately mean? Let's look at that. Thomas's work was of great significance for the development of theology. This was due to the systematic structure of his thought and to the manner in which he joined traditional doctrine with a new philosophical outlook. For centuries, Western and Eastern philosophy had been dominated by a platonic bias. And that platonic bias was very helpful because, if you'll remember, the big thing that the early Christians found in the classical literature, the classical philosophy of Plato, was that Plato believed in a supreme being. He believed in one supreme, supreme eternal being, and so that worked really well with Christianity. And so they naturally gravitated to Plato, and it was very helpful. The early Christian thinking, theology, attracting people into it was very much influenced by the philosophy of Plato, and it was a big help. But we also found that there were some dangers in that, and we find it with the very earliest heresy, and that was the, the idea of Gnosticism, because in Platonic thinking, the spiritual is valued above the material. By interpreting this Christian faith in Platonic terms, it is possible to undervalue the physical world, God's creation. And the early heretics did that. The Gnostics said, 
they they took it even further. They said the material world was the product of evil. It was bad. And so anything that had to do with the material world was automatically bad, and only the spiritual was good. Plato's saying he's he's elevating the spiritual, the world of reason, above the physical world. Well, there are some problems with that. By interpreting the Christian faith in those terms, it's possible to undervalue the physical world, which is God's creation. And that definitely was something that these thinkers that were platonic in their thinking would do. They would put reason and spirituality way above anything that was going on in the material world, and yet this is God's creation. Another issue would be the incarnation. Platonic thinking would minimize the incarnation because it had to do with the physical world. It could be pushed to the background, and that's obviously a big problem. Thomism brought balance to Christian theology by introducing the thinking of Aristotle, that philosophical thinking. Though traditional theologians reacted against it at that time, eventually its value was acknowledged, and Thomas was recognized as one of the greatest theologians of all time. So Thomas, the thinking that he brought in to Christianity is still with us today. He was a huge influence, and it took place during the medieval time, during this golden age of medieval Christianity. So moving away now from scholasticism, let's look at one other topic that was a big part of the golden age of medieval Christianity and, and also, like the scholastic thinking, still exists with us today and still influences things to a certain degree today, and that is medieval architecture. Medieval churches had two purposes, one didactic and one cultic. Their didactic purpose responded to a time in which books were scarce and there were not many who could read the ones available. So at this time, we know education for those that were poor wasn't happening a whole lot. There were many in the population. In fact, the majority of the population couldn't read at all. So it didn't even matter if there were books, but if they could read, they couldn't find a book. And if they found a book, they probably couldn't read it. So there's a big problem there. How do you get knowledge of religious things to them? Well, one of the ways that they did that was by making church buildings become the books of the illiterate. In the buildings were set forth biblical history, the lives of saints and martyrs, and key church teachings. So within the very architecture of the church buildings, you would find the teachings of the Bible. You would find statues. You would find things in, in art that would be there in the building so that somebody that couldn't read about them could go to the church. And just by walking through the building and looking at the different things there, they were being taught the stories of the church, the history of the Bible, the lives of the saints and the martyrs. So the buildings actually became ways that the church educated people in a time in which most could not read. The cultic purpose of church buildings centered on the medieval understanding of communion. The transformation of the elements into the body and blood of Christ required a church building worthy of such miraculous events. So you couldn't just have a plain building. You needed some place that was immaculate, some place that would be worthy of, of a miracle taking place every time communion happened, in which the body and the blood, the elements of communion, the bread and the wine actually turned into the body and the blood of Christ. And so they wanted the, the places that they met to be fitting for such a miraculous event to happen. And so, therefore, architecture changed. The previous basilicas evolved into structures called Romanesque. 
And there are three main differences. We talked about the basilicas several episodes ago. As these buildings changed, as architecture changed, there were three main differences as they became Romanesque. One was that the sanctuary was elongated. And a big reason for that is that the number of priests and monks grew so much that it became necessary to enlarge the sanctuary in order to include church leadership and the people that were going to come. Secondly, Romanesque structures had stone roofs instead of wooden roofs. So even the materials that they were using to build changed. And so therefore you had these long rooms, these long sanctuaries that were, that were stretched out and they suddenly, because of the, the stone being used to build them, they had these semicircular arches that were going all the way through them. So they look very different than the basilicas. And then the last thing is that a belfry was added to most of these churches. Some, the belfry was included in the building. Some, it was detached, but most of them had a belfry now. Well, towards the middle of the 12th century, the architecture changed again. Romanesque began to be supplanted by Gothic. Gothic churches used pointed arches rather than the semicircular ones that were in the Romanesque churches. Flying buttresses and ribbed vaults allowed for buildings whose main lines appeared so vertical that it seemed to soar to heaven. So just to, if you've ever walked into one of these Gothic cathedrals in Western Europe, it is breathtaking. Just the scope of how long and how massive they look and you look up into the top of them and they just seem to go on forever. And that, they were very impressive structures that were created during this Gothic time of architecture. With no need for the heavy walls of Romanesque churches, Gothic buildings were made with stained glass windows depicting biblical stories and lives of the saints. So the Romanesque structures had to be built in such a way to hold up the, the heavy roofs of them. They were built so, in such a way that the out, outside walls had to be very thick. And because of that thickness, most of these buildings were very dark because you couldn't put a window in them. You just couldn't get, the walls were too thick to add a window. So when the Gothic structure came, the, the outside walls didn't have to be as thick because of the way they were built. And so windows came back, but instead of just putting plain windows, many of them put stained glass. And again, in keeping with the idea of teaching people the stories of the church, Stained glass often had biblical figures in them. They had things about the lives of the saints, key church teachings in these beautiful stained glass. So uh, throughout these Gothic churches, you find these wonderful, beautiful stained glass windows as well. The Gothic cathedrals that still dominate the skyline of many European cities are a legacy of the Middle Ages to future generations. And if you ever go to one of these countries and get a chance to go through somewhere like Notre Dame, although it burned, or, or one of those, you're going to see a lot of tourists there and you're going to see a legacy that has lasted through the generations of these wonderful architectural marvels. But the other thing you're going to find is the current emptiness of those same buildings. They're not well attended. These churches, when they're actually having church services, they're empty. And the emptiness of those same buildings is a testament to the collapse, which was soon to come. So we've looked now over two weeks at the golden age of medieval Christianity. This is the pinnacle of Christianity during this time. Things have evolved in such a way that they've reached the, the very top. And now there's nowhere to go but down. 
And so starting next week, we're going to look at the collapse that's coming. And again, that boulder starting to roll down is going to lead us into the need for reform and a reform that is not just the reforms that have happened in the past, even though some of those were pretty significant reforms. This is going to be such a significant reform that there's actually a break. And that is the time that we know as the Protestant Reformation. So again, I'm so glad that you joined me today. I hope that you enjoyed hearing about the golden age of medieval Christianity, the second part of that. And I pray that God will bless you and you have a great rest of your week. And I hope that you'll be able to come back next week and join me as we talk about this time of collapse that's coming in the history of Christianity. God bless.